Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. When awarding the Pulitzer Prize to Raven Chacon, the prize committee called his 16-minute piece, Voiceless Mass, a concentrated and powerful musical expression with a haunting, visceral impact. The Diné composer is the first Native American to take home the prize for music. The piece premiered at a Milwaukee church with musicians spread around the room rather than appearing in an ensemble on stage. We'll talk with Chacon about the meaning of this piece and his journey to get to this place. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Art Hughes, in for Antonio Gonzalez. Native Americans prosecuted in tribal court can be prosecuted again in federal court. That's the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court this week. The case involves Merle Denespe, a citizen of the Navajo Nation. He was accused of rape but was convicted of assault and battery in what's known as a Court of Indian Offenses, a consortium of several Native nations that might not individually have the capacity to tackle court cases. Following his conviction, he was released after serving less than five months in jail. Typically, tribal courts can impose sentences of less than a year. He was then subjected to another trial for the same offense in federal court. There, he was convicted of rape and sentenced to 30 years in prison. His lawyers argued the second trial amounted to double jeopardy. The majority Supreme Court decision, however, concluded Denesby's separate trials were for violations of both a tribal ordinance and federal law, which are two separate things. Justice Neil Gorsuch, though, is among the three dissenting judges, saying the case involved the same crime and same prosecuting authority, and the majority's ruling is, quote, at odds with the text and original meaning of the Constitution. Tribal officials are putting their support behind a bill to permanently ban new uranium mining near Grand Canyon National Park. They gave their testimony at a U.S. Senate subcommittee hearing. Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports for decades Southwest tribes have been some of the most outspoken opponents of mining in the area. The Grand Canyon Protection Act would make permanent a 2012 moratorium put in place by the Obama administration on new claims throughout more than a million acres near the park. The Senate Subcommittee on Public Lands, Forests, and Mining heard from supporters of the legislation. Havasupai Chairman Thomas Sayuja Sr. submitted written testimony calling for the protection of the area's groundwater and urged passage of the bill. The Havasupai tribe lives in the Grand Canyon and has resisted uranium mining for decades. They say it could threaten their land, sole water source, and very existence. In addition, Sayuja said one uranium mine less than 10 miles from the south rim of the Grand Canyon endangers Red Butte, a sacred site to the Havasupai and an origin point of the tribe's creation story. Advocates for the bill, including Arizona Senators Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema, who sponsored the legislation, say the more than 600 active uranium claims near the canyon could eventually turn into mines without a permanent ban. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the Grand Canyon Protection Act last year. The uranium industry says new mining methods are safe and won't contaminate area aquifers. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is planning a visit to the Rosebud Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. The in-person appearance is intended to highlight the benefits of the Rosebud's portion of the federal America Rescue Plan money to offset the effects of the pandemic. One tribal official told Reuters the $191 million in ARPA money was a lifesaver for the tribe. 
Officials say much of the money will go toward building affordable housing for tribal members living on the reservation. Reuters reports there's no record of any Treasury secretary visiting any Native reservation. Minneapolis indigenous restaurant Awamni won the restaurant world's highest honor. The James Beard Foundation awarded the restaurant the best restaurant in the nation at a ceremony at the Lyric Opera in Chicago. Chef Sean Sherman says he hopes the award helps to encourage more indigenous restaurant openings. When we opened up, we coined the term uh, hashtag 86 colonialism um, because it was really a statement um, because a lot of us, people of color from everywhere, have been affected by colonialism and we just went through centuries of racist bullshit. This is showing that we can get through that, that we're still here. Sherman opened the restaurant on the banks of the Mississippi River in Minneapolis in 2021 with co-owner Dana Thompson. Sherman received a previous James Beard Award for his cookbook, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. With National Native News, I'm Art Hughes. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Diné composer Raven Chacon originally bristled at the invitation to create a work for the annual Thanksgiving concert at a Milwaukee Catholic church. But he was drawn to the opportunity to write music featuring the magnificent organ at the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist. That music piece is called Voiceless Mass, and it led to Chacon becoming the first Native composer to win a Pulitzer in music. Voiceless Mass is originally about 16 minutes long, but I want to play a sample right now. Okay, we'll go back to that sample here once we're able to get it queued up. It's been described as a haunting piece in terms of the musical sound, the tone, the theme, but that's Chacon's style. He's been turning out experimental and avant-garde pieces for years, and every one of his pieces has a deep meaning. In this hour, we'll talk with Raven Chacon about Voiceless Mass, his contributions to the arts, and his passion for music education. If you'd like to join us, and we hope you do, we're at 1-800-996-2848 or 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from New York City is Raven Chacon. He's a composer, an artist, he's Diné, and as of last month, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Raven, congratulations. Thank you, Sean. How does it feel to have your work and artistry acknowledged with such a high-profile award? <laughs> it, it came as a surprise. You know, I wasn't expecting this at all. And, you know, the phone was ringing one day, couple couple Mondays ago and it was it wasn't Pulitzer it was friends and, and family saying oh my god oh my god and I was saying you know 
I, I was going to put it on mute, but I thought it was an emergency. And I finally looked and somebody said, you won the Pulitzer. So I, I was, I was taken aback. You know, I had no idea that this was in the running and, uh, you know, I'm really honored that, that my work was acknowledged and that it's going to reach a broader audience. Yeah. It's just, Super, super cool. And I had read that, that you were, you're traveling and then you started getting text messages and people were saying, Hey, congratulations, bro. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I really want. So Raven, tell us, what are you doing in New York city right now? Well, I'm, I spend half my time, uh, you know, there in Albuquerque and, and the other half, you know, well, most of the time I'm on the road, but uh, I'm also living part-time up in upstate New York. But I'm in the city this weekend for a premiere at Tribeca Film Festival of a, of a film that I did the soundtrack for. It's a documentary called Lakota Nation versus United States. And so that premiered this weekend. And it's a yeah, powerful documentary talking about the treaties that Lakota Nation has, has gone through and, and all the times that the U.S. you know broke those treaties all the way up until today. So it's, a, it's another project to... To look out for you know and this one of course being directed by by uh, jesse shortbull and uh you know has all native voices in in the documentary well we'll definitely keep an eye out for it and where are you headed after new york city raven i'm going to germany tomorrow and uh i have a gig out there performing uh, experimental noise you know bringing some guitar pedals and microphones and doing a, a gig with a, a trumpet player who's who's based out of germany so i'll be out there for a week or so wow now you will you be touring to, to different venues in germany or is it just one gig i'm just gonna do the one gig um i know that's not carbon footprint friendly but i'm gonna i'm gonna also look at some <laughs> art while i'm while i'm out there and uh you know take the opportunity to to um yeah just go go visit some places you know and, and what city in germany is the gig in ludwigsburg Okay, I hope I said that right. It's, uh, it's near Frankfurt, <laughs> but you know, also there's a uh, there's an exhibition out there called Documenta, and Documenta is a a massive exhibition that happens every five years. And so I, I exhibited some work in that exhibition five years ago when I was a member of Post Commodity. So I wanted to come back five years later and see what they're doing this year. Well, I hear that that. Germans are, are, are really intrigued by Native people, and there's just a lot of stuff going on, Native-related museums, performances, and things like that. Is that true in Germany? I think so. You know, they, they probably wouldn't recognize a real Native when they saw one, though, because of you know, their own <laughs> myths in their heads. There's, it's funny. There's a, uh, there's a collective uh, Ojibwe artist and Alaskan artist called the New Red Order, and they actually have an artwork about these secret societies of Germans who, who dress up, you know, and, and, and do powwows and other gatherings. And, and I think uh -oh. they've infiltrated some of them as part of an artwork. So, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. wild. It sounds like wild. a, it sounds, it sounds like a whole native America calling show just in the midst of some cultural appropriation over there in Germany. But Raven, I've just now got a message from my producers and we have that track of, voiceless mass that we wanted to play. So let's go ahead and cue that up. And we are going to take a listen again. Voiceless mass is originally about 16 minutes long, but we're going to play a sample for you right now.
That was a small piece of voiceless mass from Pulitzer Prize music winner Raven Chacon. As you heard, this piece is haunting. Raven, when you hear that term haunting, is is that accurate? Is that what you're going for, a haunting sound? You know, I that's not a word I would use to describe it, but it, I, I feel like it's accurate. You know, I think it's, it's talking about something that maybe people don't want to talk about. And it's done in a place that, uh, you know, is considered a very old place. And it's considered a place that, uh, that has history. And if, if all of that ends up being the word haunting, then maybe it's appropriate. But, um, but yeah, music, I mean, music is one of the hardest things to describe. So I, I, I'm always interested in hearing people's descriptions of, of my work. Yeah, you know, and uh, your style is often referred to as avant-garde, right? And I, I feel like that's a term that's like kind of cliche nowadays. Like anything that's like kind of edgy or non-conformist, they say, "Oh, it's avant-garde, it's avant-garde." But I want to ask you, Raymond. I mean, what do you think that means to be to be considered avant-garde today? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's always new music. I mean, you know, there's there's young people making beats on their cell phone, and that's something that would have never occurred. 50 years ago and probably would have sounded like some music from, you know, aliens or something, but our ears are, are, we get used to these things. We, we listen to, I mean, I used to watch a lot of horror movies and some of those, those sounds in those movies might sound like voiceless math. You know, they're very dissonant tones sometimes. And, uh, you know, I think it's all in the context of, of where we, where we, hear them or where we're making assumptions of where we, we were going to hear music. And so, you know, the other part of that too is, is just my reasons for making music, my, my tactics. And, you know, I've, years ago when I was studying music, I was, I was wanting to do things in other traditions. You know, there's a tradition of Diné music that I, my grandfather sings, and that surely does not fit into the, Western frame of, you know, the musical scale, you know, that our ears might be used to hearing as, as being in tune, for instance. I mean, all of all the music made all over the world falls in this spectrum of tones. And so those are, that's the, that's the sonority I like to work in. Those are the tones I like to use instead of limiting it to the, you know, the eight or 12 that we have been taught in Western music education. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And your sound is so unique and and I like that how you just you expand beyond those those sounds that we hear so often those tones as you describe it. We're going to talk more with Raven Chacon about his music, about his Pulitzer Prize, about Voiceless Mass and other works of music composition that he has developed over the years. If you want to give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. We have Raven on the line today. He's talking about his music. He's talking about his Pulitzer. We'll be back right after this short break. As she's honored by the U.S. Treasury with her likeness on the quarter coin, it's a good opportunity to recount the life of Cherokee leader Wilma Mankiller. Her legacy as someone who improved the lives of her people lives on more than 12 years after her death. We'll hear about it on the next Native America Calling.
If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're spending the hour with Pulitzer Prize winning composer Raven Chacon. If you're not familiar with his work, it's been described as experimental, avant-garde, and even haunting, although not according to him. If you're familiar with him as a composer or a music advocate, give us a call. You're more than welcome to ask a question. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Raven, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the motivation to compose Voiceless Mask. What inspired you? Well, as, as we were saying in the intro, there was an invitation uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a commission coming in from an organization in Milwaukee called Present Music, and they were wanting to put together a concert on their annual Thanksgiving uh, Day music series that they've had annually. And this is not something new that I've (laughs) been invited to. It seems like uh, sometimes we Native people get invited to do things on Thanksgiving, whether we, (laughs) whether we like that (laughs) anniversary or not, you know, I think, I think there's a a thinking that there's space being given that we want to respond to that perhaps, or maybe they just feel it'd be weird if they didn't include us. And so I'm always skeptical of those invitations. And I often turn them down just because I, I don't know how to make Thanksgiving music, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I, was, I, hear you. I really thought about this one. And however, I, I wanted more information. You know, I, I, I always try to, try to hear, hear them out. And they said, well, you know, we, we also, part of this concert, is, it's, uh, this invitation is that it's going to be performed in a cathedral, Catholic Cathedral in Milwaukee, which has this magnificent organ, 100-year-old organ in, inside of it. And I started thinking, okay, well, what does this mean? What, what are all these elements meaning to, um, to an artist to respond to? Thinking about the, the church, myself growing up semi-Catholic, and all, of course, you know, those of us in New Mexico thinking about the, the history of Native people and, and the Catholic Church and all of the ways that that has conflicted, aligned, overlapped, intersected into, into culture today. But of course, at the expense of many lives and, and, you know, through a history of violence. And thinking about the organ itself, that being an extension of that building, that building being an extension of that institution, and all of this aligning on a holiday that, of course, is a symbol of colonization. Just trying to think, how can instrumental music, because I wasn't given an opportunity to write a choir piece, you know, nothing with voice, which is normally what you'd have in a church. I'm thinking, well, the organ was probably made to replace voices, to substitute voices. Maybe it was there when, when a choir wasn't going to be available. And so what does all of this mean? That you have an instrument that's built into the architecture of this cathedral 
taking the place of, of voice. And what does that mean in the church's role of suppressing voices uh, of, of people that are, they are intending to serve? What does that mean to our indigenous communities? What does that mean about towards our ongoing uh, topic and, and re revelations of residential schools and the collaboration of the church with residential schools? You know, this spring, the Pope Francis had apologized for the church's role in, in some of that that's been uncovered up in, in Canada. And so this is an ongoing topic that needs to be discussed. And if instrumental music has any way to address this, which which I admit, I'll be the first to admit it, it's hard, you know, to that music could do such a thing. I mean, there's a title and maybe there's program notes, but how can all of these elements uh, give give uh, some meaning to to what an artist might want to say. Yeah, I can understand that. In, in the pipe organ, it just seems like an instrument that's on a totally different level when we think of of like more mainstream instruments, right? I mean, the size, the tone, the resonance, and, and you describe this being a substitute for voices. So, as a composer, did that? that must have been challenging having to to use the pipe organ uh and think of that in terms of having it give voice as part of this composition what was that like yeah in in thinking about writing for the organ i i was thinking to pass repertoire written for the instruments so thinking back to you know bach johann sebastian bach who would write this these virtuosic fugues on the instrument or um you know there's so much going on there's the feet are making sounds, the left hand, the right hand, the stops of the organ are changing timbres. And I wanted to think of ways that the organ can make space for the other instrument. So providing this bed of maybe drones and, and being that the organ can play the lowest note and the highest note that any of these other instruments, the violins, the flute, the clarinet, the cello, you know, any of the strings I used, it would rather than overtake these instruments, supplement them, you know, help them mm. in supporting those tones. And so that's what the piece became, I think, on, a, on another conceptual level is, is spacing the instruments out around the, the audience and finding ways that each of these instruments can have an individual voice on top of what the organ is providing this this kind of bed of time for the other instruments to voice within. Okay. And that's really cool how you described it. The organ has the ability to make the highest and lowest notes of, of any of the other instruments that were part of that ensemble. And I watched the video and it looked like there were a lot of people there uh, in the cathedral listening that evening. What was their reaction? It was well received. Um, you know, I, I had, I knew it was already one of my favorite works that I had written. I had no idea it was going to be recognized beyond that. You know, when you compose these things, you, you're not even ensured that you're going to get one performance. And so, <laughs> you know, you, you, if, if it's a commission, then yeah, then, then you can count that there'll be one. But even during pandemic, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to have the concert. And so you write these things and you're lucky if they get performed once or twice and that's it. 
and maybe you know you're you try to document it try to get a recording made and and that might be it and the the larger the piece you know symphonic work for instance it takes quite a bit of resources to pull something like that together and so i don't expect <laughs> and i never had an expectation that my my chamber music would get performed all that often i i make these things because i have to because they're inside of me and they have to come out but you know it's something that's that's not uh you know even on everybody's radar that i think the general public doesn't go to see classical music or, or definitely not contemporary classical music at the same time it's not might not be their fault these things are you know accessible to a lot of communities especially our native communities we don't have our own orchestras or anything like that and uh you know let alone the music education to encourage that mm-hmm. well watching the video there were musicians strategically positioned throughout the cathedral and then um there was a, a conductor there at the front and, and of course the pipe organ was up there at the front and somebody playing playing a percussion instrument but raven where were you at during that performance because I, I didn't see you much in the video yeah i was another member of the audience i was sitting somewhere in the middle <laughs> because i knew that that would be the position to hear all of the instruments so I, I situated myself fairly in the, you know, not in the front, but in the middle of the audience. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was it was a beautiful event. You know, they they invited the local drum group um, from the area, Ho Chunk artist Sky Hopinka was there, and showed a film. So they they you know they were very acknowledging of of that anniversary of of being something that they wanted to include native voices inside of. Mm. Oh yeah. So, and then for somebody like myself, I mean, I, 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 I apologize. I don't know a, a lot about chamber music or, or, or being a composer, but as a composer, so you, you are commissioned to compose this piece, to write it all down. And then, and then you, you just, you turn it over to the conductor and the musicians and they, they take it from there, right. In terms of the performance, how, how does that work? That whole creative process and these different partners that are involved in, in, in making it what you, you envision and you hear in your mind. And then from that, putting it on paper and then actually having a finished product, like what was performed that evening there at the cathedral. Yeah, that's pretty much the process. I think it's, you know, anywhere from six months to a year in advance, somebody might commission a piece uh you know they came up with some funds to uh you know for for my my uh work to, to make it happen and that's about how long it took me it took me about six months to to work on this this composition amongst other things that i'm working on you know i usually go in the morning to the studio and just sit and write it out by hand you know and eventually you know put it into a notation software so it can look cleaned up and be in a, a presentation for the, the instrumentalist and you send it off to the conductor and they start dispersing the parts to the, the ensemble. And under normal circumstances, I might've had the opportunity to go and, and visit the organ because I don't know anything about the organ or I didn't, you know, this was a completely new instrument for me to compose to, for. And I had to do a lot of research from afar. I had to pick the brains of some some organist friends that are around the world and, and, you know, watch a lot of YouTube videos and just try to understand how this instrument works. And eventually, wow. you know, we, we have a date for the performance, which I already knew was going to be Thanksgiving. And 
showed up earlier that week to rehearse with the musicians. And so that would be the time that everybody is gathering for the first time and playing through it. And I give, you know, might give suggestions. I might see what works, what didn't work, tweak a few things. And, you know, you should get a one or two rehearsals, you know, maybe more and, and maybe not, maybe, maybe one inside the, the space where it's going to be performed and that's it, you know, and then on to the next project. Oh, wow. That's just so cool. And, and Raven, I, I did read a recent article in the LA Times, and, and it drew some parallels between the performance of Voiceless Mass last fall and some of the racial justice demonstrations that were going on around the same time in Wisconsin. It was all, you know, related to the Cal Rittenhouse acquittal and all that stuff. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but your performance was described as offering almost a therapeutic or healing atmosphere to the tension and turmoil that was occurring outside the cathedral throughout Wisconsin. And was that your intention to provide a release like that or, or did it just occur on its own? I mean, I, I love that description. I'm honored by, by descriptions like that. I, I do admit that inside of the work there, there is tension. And eventually, you know, if you listen more, you have this, this, tension that gets resolved musically it you have tones that are drifting apart and then coming back together into unison and even though i'm describing very technically what happens with the notes of course it symbolically it creates the same thing we can imagine you know it, it, the unison is is um of course this metaphor for for people aligning people people healing people coming to resolution and and um so that's you know that's what the work demonstrates in its sound and if people you know can feel that or can uh liken that to to the situation that they're feeling as a community then then i'm appreciative of that of that description of that the thing that happened as well is um a few days after the the um i think it was yeah it was just after the uh, premiere was that Rittenhouse uh, verdict. So people in that community, just 30 minutes away from Milwaukee, uh, you know, this was what they were dealing with. And and we were dealing with this all over this country. There were protests around Black Lives Matter, around Confederate monuments. Those of, those of us in the Southwest had the uh, Conquistador monuments that we were dealing with. And so... This was a time, even though the world was silent during lockdown, did we have a lot of people finding opportunities to voice their concerns, you know, to still gather outdoors and protest and, and mm. let their voices be, be heard amongst the, the silence that the pandemic was, uh, you know, putting on us. Yeah, and I want to ask you more about what that was like composing the piece during the pandemic and during the performance. You could tell a lot of the, the people there, parishioners had masks, some of the musicians. But right now, Raven, I want to go to the phones. We've got Chris listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Chris, thanks for calling in today. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet, Chris. What's on your mind? So my uh, my question this uh, this morning is that I know that the organ um, can just have such a large uh, and dominating voice in, in a lot of musical ensembles, both kind of in a literal sense, but then kind of just looking at what the church organ is and what it's kind of represented uh, historically. 
And so I was curious, um, uh, for Raven, when, when approaching this, um, how did you really kind of approach balance in your ensemble? You, you talked a little bit about having the organ as kind of creating this bed for the other instruments to kind of speak over. But with the organ having such a large and dominant sound, was, was that a challenge to really find a, an accurate balance so that way the organ wouldn't just be dominating the overall sound of the ensemble? Well, Chris, thanks for that question. Raven, what about that? The challenge of balancing such a such a big instrument like the organ with, with the other instruments? Yeah, good question. Absolutely, that was a challenge because there's not a lot of volume control with the organ. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, you hit a key and it's kind of on or off, you know, and you can pull different stops and, and allow for, you know, more and more harmonics to resonate from there. But overall, it's a very large instrument. And so there was a balance. I mean, if, if I wanted the ensemble to play in the mid-range or higher register, then maybe the organ is, is playing the bass, you know, doing the low end. And so, um, or vice versa, you know, you're having, having the instruments play at their lowest end of the spectrum and the, the organ is playing these super high-pitched tones up in the upper range of our hearing. And so exploiting those kinds of... Um, those kinds of resonances and this also being amplified within the hall. I, I wanted the, the church to resonate all of the voices. The viola being the quietest of the instruments had an opportunity to compete with that organ sound. And there's another instrument inside of uh, the ensemble that I hadn't spoken about yet. And that's electronic tones, fine tones, pure tones that also kind of mimic what is happening in the organ. So having subwoofers, and, uh, these kind of very low rumbly tones to kind of, you know, subtly activate what's happening inside of your body as a listener. Mm. Well, listeners, if you've got a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. We are speaking today with composer Raven Chacon and a recent Pulitzer Prize winner. Give us a call. We'll be right back after this break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is still time to join our conversation with Dene composer Raven Chacon. He won a Pulitzer Prize this year for music. You're welcome to share kudos, or maybe you want to ask Raven a question about his music. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Raven, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Did you grow up listening to a lot of chamber music, or were you into other kinds of music? No, I, I listened to metal, you know, all the way until yesterday, um, or till this morning. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, that's a, that was a big part of, I, I don't know, my love of music. I mean, I listen to anything that, that you can listen to, and um, and it all, you know, it all ends up in the music that you compose. But uh, again, yeah, my, my grandpa, Frank Dinejaja, he, uh, 
he sings songs all the time. And so he was the main musician in our family. He'd just compose songs, you know, on the fly while sitting there watching basketball games. And so I think that had an influence for sure in there. Um, but no, I didn't have any exposure to any kind of classical music or anything until the family later moved to, to Albuquerque from Chinle. We were living in Chinle, Arizona before. And, and when we moved to Albuquerque, I had the opportunity to take more formal music lessons. So I, I had a piano teacher, her name is Don Chambers, there in Albuquerque, and she taught my sister and I how to play, play the instrument. And so I can't say that I came out of that being a, a amazing pianist or anything, but it did give me the, the knowledge of, of how to read these notes and how music was put together, at least in the Western system, you know, what, what middle C was, what a quarter note was, all of this notation made sense to me. And what it allowed me to do was maybe apply it to other instruments, the guitar, the cello. So, of course, I, you know, I wanted a bass guitar so I could, again, play metal. And I wasn't very good at that either. Ended up sounding like noise. And <laughs> that's, that's, I just kept going with that. That's what, I, that's what I do. Maybe that ended up with an avant-garde sound, but really, I was just trying to make music I'd never heard before. <laughs> and... Raymond, I, I've also read you quoted as saying your compositions in some in some ways are, are designed to be shared experiences for your listeners or the people playing them. And, and sometimes the scores are even designed uh, as problems or puzzles that need to be solved. That, that's like so deep. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, they're all different. All of, all of the projects are different, but, you know, I, it's usually a, a set of, circumstances I've given, I'm given, you know, whether that's the instrumentation, whether that's the invitation, like in this case with the, the, the date and the venue. Uh, other times, you know, maybe I'm collaborating with friends. And so we are working out something that uh, a way of making music that is only for ourselves. And whatever else happens beyond that is, is some other accident or residue or artifact of that experience. And so you know, I, I'm, I think the more I've been working on this, I was finding maybe more kind of conceptual reasons for making, making the art. You know, I was finding other kinds of metaphor and symbology and narrative inside of these opportunities or these situations. And that, that might be the best way to describe my interest in, in working in this, in this medium. I mean, of course, we love music. Everybody loves music. But inside of music, there's all this other, all these other things that can happen. And a lot of them having to do with human relationships of the people that are performing it or their relationship with the listener. Yeah. But you know what, Raven? I, I think that's what sets people like you apart, composers and people that, that can, that draw from that. Because when somebody like me listens to music, I just, oh yeah, I hear the beat, you know, I might hear a guitar riff, right? I hear some, but I, I can't, I can't feel the music on those multiple dimensions like people, you have a gift. I mean, I mean, people like you, you have that gift and it's just such, it's such a wonderful, I, I just think it's so cool that you have that and, and you can share it and you articulate it so well, not only in the music, but just talking with you now and, and how you describe it. It's just, it's so amazing. And we've got another caller uh, on the line, Gerald, listening on KUNM in Albuquerque as well. Gerald, thanks for calling in. Okay, thank you. Um, congratulations for your, your unique works, 
And I wanted a little insight on how the Pulitzer people discover you. Or do you submit your work and, and a little bit about the process? And a second question, any chance your piece will be performed in the uh, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Taos area? Okay, thanks, Gerald. Raven, first question, how the Pulitzer people find you? Obviously, you didn't go looking for them, as you described earlier. Well, I think, you know, I think there was a submission, you know, probably on the on, uh, by the commissioners, by the presenters um, of, of putting it out there. But, of course, there's thousands of applications or submissions, I, I can imagine. Uh, so, yeah, complete surprise to me. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, as it's won this award, there has been interest in, in this being performed in other cities. Uh, different places all over the world, and so there has been some interest also in the Albuquerque area, which I would love to see happen because that's my home. And there are there are some places, there are some organists and uh, you know ensembles who do this kind of work. So I think it's very possible. Okay, so five oh five. Raven Chacon could be coming there soon. We've got another caller, Jin, listening in East Texas online. Jen, you're on Native America Calling. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I really want to say congratulations. I'm so happy to hear one more Dene person um, make such progress with his gift and knowledge. I'm accustomed to our Carlos Mackay and his work. And, you know, he worked with the Santa Fe Orchestra many years ago. And on my radio show, I used to play a lot of his music. And I got to see him perform with a throat singer, which he brought to Austin, Texas, when I was there. So I'm wondering, um, was he some sort of an influence, at least someone who had been out there ahead of you? And I really, I really, this is just awesome. And, and this music is very distinctly beyond anything ever before. And I'd, I'd heard R. Carlos Mackay's throat shoot a bit, but... Thank, thank you for taking my call. I'll just listen. You bet, Jen. Raven, uh, R. Car- R. Carlos Nakai, an inspiration of yours? Yeah, you know, R. Carlos uh, is, is is a friend. He, You know, there was a group of us who used to meet up about almost 20 years ago called the First Nations Composer Initiative. And it was the the very few of us Native people who were composing, just gathering and and thinking up ideas and trying to encourage others to come out of the woodwork. You know, there weren't a lot of us at the time who who were doing this kind of work. And so, while I I can't say that R.C.'s music itself is an influence, I think R.C. as a a person, as a a person who has, um, you know, paved, paved the way for a lot of Native musicians to to have have a <clears throat> an, a negotiation inside of this larger music world of, of uh, instrumental music, you know, all of all of the complexities of that. He he definitely gave me a lot of insight into that, and um, and he, you know he gave me a bunch of gear once. He I went or <laughs> he invited me over to the house, and he had some reverb units and a four track recorder and some speaker monitors. He said, you want these? And I said, yeah. And of course, 
that ended up getting used somewhere else, you know, for a noise performance in Albuquerque, some basement or, you know, I had, I had some, some venues in Albuquerque where we put on shows and RC's gear was definitely utilized for that. So, um, you know, it's a small world out there and we, we all know each other. And, um, it's really, it's really uh, impactful when you see, see the work that somebody has done and you learn about all of the things that they had gone through to get to where they are. RC is definitely one of those people. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but, but our Carlos Nakai, he, he used to play the trumpet. And that was, really? that was his kind of entry into having a Western instrument. And, of course, you know, that, he, he tells how that has even influenced his flute playing, you know, his, his exercise of the breath through that instrument. So really inspiring to hear how we, how we overlap in these different worlds of, of music as well and, and where all of our education ends up in the music that we make today. And it, it, it's really nice to hear, you know, our, our Carlos gave back, right, by giving you some gear and, and you described this First Nation composer initiative that you worked on together. And Raven, I know music education, that's a big part of what you do as well. And um, the Native American Composer Apprentice Project, you're heavily involved in that. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I'm the senior composer for that project. I've been the composer for since 2004, teaching up to 30 students every year to compose new works for string quartet. And so this is a project that was started by the Grand Canyon Music Festival as a way to engage with the young people on, you know, whose land that is. And as we, as we know, a lot of, there's not a lot of art resources or music resources on our, you know, in our native communities. And music education is definitely not a priority in some of these schools. So, uh, so it's, it's a challenge to, to come every year and, and teach young people this, this language of music notation um, when, when they don't, you know, they might not have the instruments to support such education or even a classroom or a teacher that would have given them any kind of background to do this kind of work. On the other hand, there's some great uh, music educators out there. I mean, there's a, there's a teacher, Kim Schaefer, up at Montezuma Creek High School. There's a teacher, Eric Swanson, who just retired at Chinle High School. And these are people who make huge changes in these young people's lives uh, because I see myself in these young people. They, music is, might be the only thing they want to do in life and the thing that they're good at. And, um, you know, at least giving them a start of collaborating with world-class musicians, in this case, it's a string quartet who comes from New York City and plays their work at the Grand Canyon. Uh, this is big. You know, I didn't have my work played by any professionals until I, don't know, I was probably like 25 or so. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's something we do every year. And, and I'm actually trying to build an archive online of all 300 compositions that have been written while I have been teaching this program. And where can listeners go to learn more about this program or, or maybe even apply? Well, uh, they can contact the Grand Canyon Music Festival to see if we could bring this to their school. Right now, we're, we're only working with schools on the Navajo and Hopi reservations. Uh, but any school in Arizona or New Mexico or southern Utah who wants to get involved, I, I recommend they contact the Grand Canyon Music Festival to 
to uh, see if that can happen. And so, you know, the past couple of years have been difficult because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, the, some of the schools weren't allowing outside visitors, which is understandable. But the hope is that we this is a project that can expand to other communities around the country. And really, it just requires more and more educators, you know, to come in and, and collaborate. Okay. And Raven, I know your wife is a, a big part of your music, a big part of your composing, a big part of your career. Talk more, talk more about your wife. How did you guys meet? <laughs> well, she, yeah, she is a big part of my, my artwork because that's the first person to give me feedback. But, um, but yeah, my, my wife is Candace Hopkins. She's from Carcross Tagish First Nation up in the Yukon. And she is known as a as a curator, one of one of the top curators working in the world, uh, especially in bringing uh, indigenous art to a broader audience. And so she has a project, very exciting project up in upstate New York called Forge Project, which is a collection of contemporary Native art, and it also has expanded into other kind of larger projects. There's a fellowship that Forge Project is doing and uh, a whole lot of exciting work being being done just in the overall field of contemporary Native artworks. Uh, this is something also that, you know, we have other institutions. IAIA, Institute of American Indian Arts, is another place I teach um, in their MFA program. And so I'm really excited about, you know, the expression of, of younger Native artists that is happening today. And, you know, this experimentalism that I, that we've been talking about, I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be weird or avant-garde. It's just trying things that have never been done before. And if, if a young native person has never done it before, then that might mean that it just doesn't exist in the world and should. Mm, yeah. So is your wife headed with you to Germany? Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, she also is interested to see what documenta will be producing this year. And so, yeah, we go we go look at these things together. We try to see as much art as possible. And uh, this exhibition is being curated by a Indonesian collective. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, to see how they they are responding to to the world. And and um, and given the the venue of Documenta in Germany to to be that platform. And what did she say when you won your Pulitzer? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, I think she was, uh, she was, she was shocked. She was proud, but, um, yeah, then she said, yeah, on to the next, on to the next one. And that's, that's now go, that's now go I wash the too. dishes. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I had, I, it, was, it was short lived. I had to go do, do some work. After. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, that is all the time, unfortunately, we have to talk today with Raven Chacon. I, I'd like to thank him again for spending the hour with us. And again, Raven, congratulations on your Pulitzer. Indian Country's very, very happy for you. Listeners, um, we've got more to talk about. We've got more to say. Um, I, I did want to ask you, Raven, just one quick question before we sign off, though. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of um, young people just taking that first step? If you could just give just one word of advice, one sentence of advice, help somebody out listening who wants to take that first step on a musical journey. The first step is the most important. You have to put everything into it. 
you know, you have to get out there. Nobody's going to come discover you. You have to go drive to the next town, the next bigger town, play a concert. It might go horribly, but at least you did it. And then you do it again and again and again and never stop. Okay. Well, folks, join us again tomorrow. We'll be talking about Wilma Mankiller, the late Cherokee tribal leader who was featured on a U.S. quarter as part of the American Women Quarters program. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.